2 Corinthians 8 and verses 1 to 9. Um, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. After the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you are selling everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to testify, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then uh, a very short reading from Colossians 3, 5 to 6. Put to death then whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let's just pray. Father, I pray that you will uh, speak to us. Challenge us, comfort us, teach us, whatever you want to do to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to talk about the two G's, greed and generosity. I know there are lots of other G's, but they're the ones I want to talk about. Um, What is the worst sin? What's the worst possible sin? Uh, it's kind of opposite of the question that Jesus was asked. What's the greatest commandment? What's the worst sin? Well, one possible answer would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, because Jesus said that was the unforgivable sin. Um, of course, there's some doubt over what that means. And various people have their own theory, usually based on their particular theology. In other words, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is whatever is the opposite of what they believe to be the crucial thing for being a Christian. Judging by um, many, uh, many of us, you think the worst sin would be all kind of sexual sin. Certainly judging by the t- uh, church reaction. It's kind of interesting to compare. You know, if you go, you have people who tout their testimonies around the country and the world, and they're usually ex-terrorists, ex-drug abusers, ex-murderers. And they're usually treated with, uh, you know, a great welcome by churches. But if somebody came in saying they were an ex-adulterer or an ex-child abuser, they'd probably be shunned. So it's strange how we react to different things, isn't it? Now, I've heard people almost celebrating their history as, a, as one of the things I mentioned earlier. But if you read the Old Testament prophets, the worst sin without a doubt is idolatry. If you take the Ten Commandments, two of the first three at least are commandments against idolatry about worshipping only God, about having no idols. And if you add to that, do not steal and do not covet, four of the Ten Commandments are actually against uh, idolatry. 
So I was wondering what idolatry means in our society, and, and, and we have various ideas about what idols are in our lives. But then I remembered this uh, verse I read to you from Colossians, the two verses. Put to death whatever belongs to your early, earthly nature. And it gives a list, and it says, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And it seems that from Paul's point of view, greed and idolatry were the same thing, and that's the worst sin. In other words, the worst sin you can commit is to be greedy. And it struck me that people with sexual sins and problems ought to be shunned by a church, but greedy people might well be welcomed into a church with, with hardly a blink of the eyelid. And we live in a society characterized by greed, and of course the society at the moment is destroying itself through not just the greed of the big bankers, but greed in general. The greed of the people who wanted something for nothing, who wanted to take the waiting out of wanting, if you remember that advert for Barclay Card. And then I started thinking about greed uh, in the Bible. And greed actually plays a pivotal part in virtually every major event in the Scriptures. And some examples. The original sin... When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And so began the story of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. It was good for food. It was desirable for gaining something. Basically, she was a person looking in the shop window and thinking, I fancy that. I want it. I'm going to have it. It's interesting, isn't it? The original sin was a victimless sin. She didn't kill anyone. didn't steal from anyone. didn't do anything to anyone else. She just took something she wanted. Something most of us do on a very regular basis. So greed was a key component in the first sin of mankind. And it played a large part in separating people from God, people from each other, and people from the environment. In other words, all the problems that are in the world today. Moving on, Israel was entering the promised land and they had just defeated Jericho and they came up against the tiny city of Ai and they were defeated. And God showed them, or showed Joshua, that somebody had stolen something which he shouldn't have taken. Another victimless crime because Jericho had already been defeated. Nobody owned this stuff anymore. Achan had taken uh, some of the, the loot from the city. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done and do not hide it. Achan replied, It's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia... 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And for a modern mentality, the punishment for that, the stoning to death of him and his family, seems way over the top. But Israel was about to enter the promised land. One man's greed caused defeat for the whole people. God would not allow that sin to spread among the people as they entered into the place that was going to be where his kingdom would be lived out. 
Moving on, I'm sure we could pick lots of other examples from the, the uh, Old Testament. The first temptation of Jesus. First temptation was, if you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone. Before every other temptation, Jesus was tempted the most basic thing of all, food. Just like Eve in the garden. It was a kind of repetition almost. In Jesus' life, one of the few people who was actually turned away by Jesus, although you could say he turned himself away, was the rich young ruler. Because he wanted to hold on to what he'd got. And Jesus' greatest condemnation, I mean, Jesus never condemned people for, um, for the sins that we condemn people for. But it says the Pharisees who loved money, in Luke, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. In other words, they steal these houses off the widows. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And elsewhere, Jesus criticized the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for cheating their parents out of what they needed by finding a loophole in the law and keeping the money for themselves, claiming to devote it to God. Why was Jesus betrayed by Judas Iscariot? He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was greedy. And then you get to the beginning of the early church, of the new church, and you get a virtual repeat of the story of Achan, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These two disciples, true believers, sold a piece of land, gave some money to the church, very generous of them, but they claimed to give the whole amount, but they kept some back. As a result, again, what appears to be a completely the over-the-top punishment, they were struck down dead. It's a companion story to the story of Achan. God was not going to let greed and hypocrisy enter his new church, his new kingdom. That had to be dealt with in the most dramatic fashion. So throughout the Bible, the sin that um, is punished most severely and the sin which could cause the biggest problems for God's people is greed, which is idolatry. And the story continues to this day. It's interesting by way of contrast to look at how God dealt with murder. Moses was a murderer. King David was a murderer. Saul of Tarsus was a murderer. They were forgiven. With sexual sin, David, King David, the woman caught in adultery. With doubt, with cowardness and unbelief, Thomas, Peter and the other disciples, they're all forgiven, they're all dealt with much less harshly. The only other sin to come anywhere near greed in Jesus' condemnation is hypocrisy. And hypocrites were nearly always greedy. So we live in a a society characterized by greed. We are an idolatrous people. In fact, our society is built on greed. Even now, we have been encouraged to borrow money to spend it on things we don't need to get industry working again. That's what it's about. Our society can't survive in its present form without people buying what they don't need and what what they really didn't want until they saw it in the adverts. 
The Trafford Centre is even built to look like a temple. So materialism and consumerism, the gods of our society. Our standard of living is measured in financial terms. Economic growth is seen to be the measure of good government and a contented people. And of course now we're beginning to see the effects when it all comes crashing down around the people who built it, including ourselves. So what are the symptoms of greed? How do we know whether we're greedy? How do we know whether we're idolaters? Well, the first one is perhaps just being rich. Jesus said it was very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Though he said all things are possible with God. The trouble with this, of course, is we are all incredibly rich. Uh, I went onto a website that, that asked you to enter your um, family income. And then it showed where you stood on, on a, a, um, a kind of scale of world incomes. And if it stretched from there to there, I was about there. I suspect everyone in this room would be about there. You know, in world terms, we're incredibly rich. But Paul wrote, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Symptoms of greed and idolatry, holding on to what we have. Jesus told the story of the man with the great harvest who decided to build bigger barns. But that night his soul was required of him. And the scripture makes it clear that the more we have, the more we're expected to give. And that what we have actually belongs to God and not to us. We are stewards of this. We're required to give generously. A third symptom of greed and idolatry is shortchanging God. In Malachi chapter 1, the prophet says, When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. God expects our best. Giving God less than our best, the tail end of our time, what's left after we've had what we want, or simply, like Ananias and Sapphira, trying to fool God into thinking that we're giving it all when we're actually not. That's all short-changing God, and it's a form of greed, which is idolatry. When I'm leading worship, I'm always loath to lead hymns, uh, songs that promise that we're going to give God everything. Because I feel almost encouraging people to be Ananias and Sapphira. Because you might mean it when you're sitting there that minute. But not everyone can mean that all at once. I don't see that's possible. And I don't like encouraging people to tell fibs, even if they think they mean them at the time. Another symbol of um, greed and idolatry is always wanting more, newer, better. Seeing each new thing as a stepping stone to something better. Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Strange, isn't it, how people, whether they're Christians or not, know that getting things doesn't make them happy. They know from experience that that you want it, you want it, you want it, you get it, and actually it's not as good as you thought it was, and you want the next one. And that anyway, it's out of date by the time you've got it. And yet, still want the next one. You know, it's like a drug, isn't it? And the only way out of it is to be content with what we have. I was thinking they're changing my car. It's seven years old now. And I was thinking, well, why? I only drive to school and back. What's the point of that? We're called to stand against the spirit of the age. Actually stand out against it. And the symbol of greed and idolatry is putting money, possessions and so on before God and others. 
And in life we're presented with choices, if we see them as choices. How should I spend my money and time? What career choices should I make? Should the maintenance of the things I own, including my house and car, be time-consuming to the detriment of caring for others and God's work? The thing that our economy is built upon is the thing that God cannot tolerate. It's greed, which is idolatry. But rather than go on with a very negative kind of sermon, I thought, what about the other G? What's the greatest virtue? Well, clearly Paul says it's love. But I don't want to disagree with Paul over this, because he's not here to have an argument with. But I'm going to pick out another word, but it really summarizes love. It doesn't appear in the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and it doesn't appear in the fruit of the Spirit list in Galatians 5. But it is the embodiment of what we believe about God and love in action. And the word is generosity. I just love that word. There are two words I love that begin with G. They are grace and generosity. And I could sit there feeling warm just thinking about them. It doesn't mean I'm very gracious or generous, but I just love the words. Generosity is in some ways the opposite of greed. Generosity is non-calculating. It's unreasonable, and it's often unfair. If you recall the parable of the man who paid people the same amount, however long they'd worked, he says, are you upset because of my generosity? It was totally unfair, but it was generous. And it sums up much of what God wants us to be. It's never grudging. It's an attitude to life. That's what generosity is. It's an attitude to life. I did a word search in BibleGateway.com and I was actually surprised to find how many times the word generosity or generous appeared in the Bible in that it wasn't in the list of virtues I was looking at. Here's some. Deuteronomy 5. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. Psalm 37, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Psalm 112, good will come to the one who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Proverbs 11, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Proverbs 22, a generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Acts 10.2, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Romans 12.8, if it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. And I'm sure there were some more which I've got there. 2 Corinthians 9, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 1 Timothy 6, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Then James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. And it was my Bible reading notes yesterday that um, led me to thinking about generosity. Um, One of them was what we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9. I'll read you just a bit of it again. 
And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty, world up in rich generosity. Seems like an oxymoron, that, doesn't it? An opposite, a contradiction. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The other reading was... um, a bit of a bizarre reading on generosity. It was the story of Naboth and his vineyard. For those who don't know, I've forgotten the story. Naboth had a vineyard uh, close to King Ahab's palace. Ahab wanted this vineyard and offered Naboth um, uh, either a better vineyard somewhere else or, or the money for it, and Naboth wouldn't give it to him. It was his family's inheritance. So, uh, Naboth, uh, so Ahab went home sulking. And his wife Jezebel said, well, why don't you get some people of the city to accuse him of blasphemy and uh, so on, and then stone him to death. So he did. And off went Naboth, happy to, not Naboth, Ahab, happy to take his vineyard. Then along came Elijah and accused him and said, uh, God's going to destroy your household and, and, and so on because of this terrible thing you've done. And it says in uh, 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings 21, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So he's actually down there as the worst king of Israel. But, and I've forgotten this bit of the story until I read it yesterday. When Ahab heard the words of Elijah condemning him, He tore his robes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. I was impressed by the generosity of the the Macedonian churches giving out of their poverty. But I've got to say, at first, I was appalled by God's generosity towards Ahab. And I'm sure Naboth's family would have been appalled by it. How unfair is that? But then I remember, actually, David did exactly the same, didn't he? When he, when he took Bathsheba as his wife and uh, had her husband killed. And he was forgiven. I don't tend to be quite so appalled by that, or I find it a bit dodgy. And then I remember Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to preach to Nineveh because he knew how generous God was. And they were so bad, he didn't want them forgiven. And then, of course, I remember his generosity to me. Now, I haven't actually stolen anyone's vineyard and had them killed. But I've been part of a system that does exactly that in stealing things from people in poor countries so we can live uh, lives and get cheap food and cheap clothes. So I'm complicit in exactly the same sins. So we're called to be a generous people as our God is a generous God. And I don't think that's how Christians in general are seen in our society. We're often seen as the opposite. Rightly or wrongly, we're often seen as people who are self-righteous and who criticise and judge other people. It's a story I've told uh, in many places because I think it's such a a telling story from the, uh, I think the first chapter or one of the chapters of What's So Amazing About Grace uh, by Philip Yancey, where he tells the story of a young woman who uh, w- was a prostitute and she'd done all sorts of terrible things. And he said, have you thought of going to church? And she said, what would I go there for? I feel bad, about, bad enough about myself already. 
And then Yancey attends a meeting with a friend of his who's uh, declared himself to be homosexual at a gay rights rally, not as a member, but just to observe. And he sees the hatred on the faces of the evangelical Christians shouting and yelling abuse at people in wheelchairs suffering from AIDS and yelling, you're going to die, you're going to suffer in hell and things like that. Doesn't sound very generous, does it really? So where do we start? Well, we start with the fact we have a generous God. And we start with the fact that all we have and all we, we are belongs not to us but to him. We're told you are not your own, you were bought with a price. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24. Oh, yes. I was talking to a, a minister who actually had just been very generous to us, I have to say. He'd done something for us very generous. But he told us that he gave God a tithe and then what was left was his. And he did with it whatever he wanted. And I thought, oh, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. But then I wondered if he was just putting into words what I do anyway. I'm not sure. But it wasn't right. To be generous is to be open-handed, to be open-hearted. It's to be non-calculating about what you do with uh, your money and your time. It's never counting the cost. It's unselfish. It's warm and it's not cold. So how can we be generous? Well, as I say, it's a whole attitude to life. In a way, as soon as we start defining it and dissecting it, we become calculating about it and we become ungenerous. That's the problem. So really, I could finish now and say, Lord, give me a generous heart. Give me a generous spirit. But I will dissect it a bit. Some areas of generosity. We're called to be generous with our time. Jesus went off after a hectic time of preaching, teaching and healing and he went off with his disciples for some rest. But the crowd follow him, followed him. Luke 9 tells us, but the crowds learned about where he'd gone and they followed him. And he welcomed them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. And then he fed them. I think I chose this first because I think it's one of my worst failings. How often I resent it when someone interrupts my plans. And the older I get, the more set in my ways, the worse I become. But we're called on to be generous with our time. We're called on to actively seek ways to use it lovingly. These Macedonian Christians, it said they insisted on giving out of their poverty. They wouldn't take no for an answer. We're called to actively seek ways to consider the needs of others more important than our own. And to be generous with our time because it's not ours, it's God's. And the older you get, you realise actually it's quite a scarce commodity time, isn't it? And uh, there's not that much of it left. Let's use it well. We're called to be generous in our relationships, especially in forgiving and in the way we talk about other people. Mentioning God's forgiveness of Ahab. It appalled me at first, but it's what our God is like. In forgiving, without reserve and without condition, we share in the work and the life of God. When we withhold forgiveness, we reject God's forgiveness to us. The Lord's Prayer makes that very clear. We're called to be generous in our relationships with others, especially our fellow Christians. 
Generosity gives the benefit of the doubts. When you've got a generous attitude, you don't immediately suspect someone's motives or say why they're doing that. You believe the best about them, even politicians. You believe the best about them first. It doesn't cost you anything. Generosity doesn't count the cost. It's willing to be wronged and wronged again in order to demonstrate the forgiveness of God. That does cost you something. Generosity sees the best in others. How often in church I've heard people, I may may have done it myself, but how often I've heard others speak in such an ungenerous way about other people. Fellow believers. Our previous minister, Ruth, used to say, guard people's reputations. And actually, I've I've tried to take that on board. I think, if I'm going to say something about somebody, is it doing anything bad to their reputation? Well, if it is, don't bother saying it. Because it wouldn't have achieved anything. I try to be more... I try to think more nowadays about the quips and clever little jokes I make about people. I think they're clever anyway. I don't think anyone else does. You know, are they putting somebody down? Is it a generous way of dealing with people? Generosity leaves no place whatsoever for gossip. I was reading in a book about evangelicalism about different statements of faith. And at the moment, we're um, putting one together for our church profile. If you read a, a church's statement of faith, it's kind of interesting to see how they view mankind. Some characterize people as fallen sinners beset by original sin with no redeeming features until God redeems them. Others see people as made in the image of God and still bearing that image, loved by God to the point of death, though marred by sin. Do we have a generous view of people? Mother Teresa insisted on seeing Christ in other people. And some of us who were evangelical Christians thought, what? Christ's only in those who believe. Does it do us any harm to see Christ in other people? It may affect the way we treat them. Do we have a generous view of people? When we disagree with people, when we fall out with them, when people leave our fellowship, we're called on to be generous. And when they come back, we're called to be generous and to believe the best in people. And even if they don't agree with us, at least to believe they've done it for the best of motives. And the third and final uh, area of generosity I want to look at is the one I suppose the most obvious, which is wealth and money. As I said, by the standards of the vast majority of the people of this world, we're incredibly wealthy. We may even be more wealthy than the rich young ruler that Jesus uh, said had to give away all his money. I doubt if he had, a, he had um, an air-conditioned car or a central heat in his house. He might not have needed it. I doubt if he had many of the comforts. We, I doubt if he had running water in his house. The poor widow was commended by Jesus for giving generously from her poverty when the rich man wasn't, although he gave much more. And Isaiah 58 says one of the most challenging things, spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry. I often sit in my house when I'm being quiet in the morning and I'm praying or thinking, and I look at all the stuff around me, and I think, you know, what an amazing amount of stuff I've got. 
The father, I can't remember who this was. I thought it was Martin Luther King's dad originally, but I'm not sure it was. But it was the father of someone whose book I read. Um, always gave to beggars. And his son said to him, but a lot of them are fakes. And his dad said, well, that's not my problem. I've been called by God to give to those who ask. What they do with it is their responsibility. Now, you may say, and I may say, it's not as simple as that. And it isn't. But his basic approach to life was right. I can only quibble over who I give to when I do it from a generous heart. So a generous person can say, well, actually, I won't give to that. But a non-generous person can't because they've no right to. One little thing I do try to do with money is if I'm being asked in a service for money, the first figure that comes into mind, I double it because I'm convinced that the first figure I think of won't be generous enough. (laughs) I'm not saying I'm generous. I'm just saying that is one little trick I've used to try to get myself uh, into a more generous way of thinking and and of giving. Years ago, I read a poster and it said, if in doubt, do the generous thing. And I thought it was a lovely phrase. Because sometimes as Christians, we're all tangled up with theology and this, that and the other. And actually, God wants us to be generous. And sometimes you have to forget your theology for that and just go on to do something. We've been, a, we've been called to announce... This says to conclude, by the way. You'd be very glad to know. We've been called to announce the kingdom of God, to live it out. And in doing this, we're called, out to stand, we're called to stand out from the unforgiving, graceless, grasping, blaming, me-obsessed society in which we live. We're called not just to be grateful receivers of God's bounty, but generous givers of it. And if generosity shines through our lives and our life as a church, people will be drawn to Christ because they'll see him in us. Um, In the Times magazine yesterday, there's an article about Christians in China. And apparently there are more Christians in China now than there are members of the Communist Party. I think it's at 100 million on a conservative count. The beginning of the article left me feeling slightly edgy because it was suggesting that some people are Christians in the cities in China because it fits in more with the kind of uh, Western materialist way of looking at the world. And I thought, mm, I'm not sure about that. But later on it said this, that it's also common knowledge in China that huge numbers of the volunteers who raced to help with the aftermath of last year's devastating earthquake in southwest China were Christians. Many are still there helping the survivors and sometimes preaching. It's fantastic, isn't it? We didn't know that in the West, did we? But in China, it's well known that a lot of the people who rush there and stay there are Christians. I think that's brilliant. If anything's going to draw people to Christ, it must be that. And just to conclude, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving, this generosity of our generous God. Amen.